All right, if you want to join me in Genesis chapter 48, we'll see. I'd like to, Lord willing, maybe uh, tonight, next week, to be able to finish up. We only have three chapters left. Potentially, maybe we can do chapter 48 and 49 as a unit tonight. We have to move a little more rapidly to do that. Then chapter 50 is kind of a good uh, closing chapter. Maybe we could take that in one session. We'll... We'll see what the Lord uh, allows. We didn't quite get all the way out the the backside of chapter 47 last time. We remember chapter 47, we kind of left off where uh, Joseph has now uh, reunited completely with his father and his brothers. He's invited them to come back to live with him there in the land of Egypt so that he could provide for them and take care of them through the remaining years of the famine. So this incredible reunion took place between Joseph and and his father Jacob. They've now settled into the area of Goshen where they'll be able to continue to work as shepherds and in a sense be separated from the Egyptian culture. And so they could be in the land but not be in a sense indoctrinated and, and overly influenced by the land and really again in the sovereignty of God and all these things natural affairs are taking place and yet you have God sovereignly and supernaturally superintending over the affairs of just really everyday life and bringing what really at this point is kind of more like a like a tribe in one sense I guess you could say some you know 70 to 80 people approximately coming back to the area where God will then with that small group of people over the next season of of a few hundred years will then multiply them incredibly into almost some two and a half million people as God will birth a nation uh, the nation of Israel. In fact, that's if you notice chapter 47, verse 27, simply tells us uh, there in 47, 27, Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied uh, exceedingly. And that's exactly what would take place over the next, in essence, 400 years as they would be in the territory. They Really, at a set point, God then began to push the button on their growth and prosperity and settled into the place where God intended them to be at the right season. Then God began to uh, bring a a tremendous multiplication and growth among them. Uh, Verse 28 says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt, notice, 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. So Jacob came when he was 130 years thought that he didn't have many years left and actually ended up living another 17 years total before he died. And we'll see basically tonight the record of his death and him passing off the scene. Verse 29 says, And when the time drew near that Israel, again, which is a name for Jacob, as we've talked about before, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph to him and said, Now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh And deal kindly and truly with me, and please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers, and you shall carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him, so Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed. So again, Jacob at this point, his health is declining. Interestingly enough, he thinks his health's declining, and he's going to live for 17 17 more years. So when you're 130, 
you know, there's, I guess, a certain point where you, you kind of sense, you know, hopefully this is over. And uh, I think at a point like that, when you know God, I don't know if you want to live another 17 years. You kind of want the tent to just expire and be gathered to your people, as you'll see ultimately will happen. But uh, God actually allows his life to be extended another 17 years, which in some senses I think was gracious. He had 17 more years, no doubt, to interact with Joseph, who he had been separated from and to get to see uh, his his grandsons that Joseph had had and to interact with his family a little bit longer. But uh, here you see this request of Jacob to Joseph asking him, again, he says, verse 20, to put your hand under my thigh and, and swear to me or make an oath or a promise. And we saw this back earlier in the book of Genesis with Abraham and his servant back in Genesis chapter 24. Again, this was just, just a cultural thing, exactly what it means commentators uh, have different speculation on it. Some people look at it as again the idea of the, you know, the, the, your offspring, and there's some connection to that. Uh, as bizarre as it seems, we don't do that today, so I'm not even going to touch the thing. <laughs> You're open to your own interpretation there. I don't, you know, but it had something of a customary. Uh, connection to them. It was a way of indicating, yes, I am sincere. He, he, he places his hand there under his thigh and he makes this oath, notice, to not bury him or put his bones in Egypt. He says, look, take me back to the land of promise. Bring me back to Canaan. Promise me when I die, you won't bury me here in Egypt, but you'll bring me back to the land of promise. And, and I find this just a, an interesting thing because it kind of shows you where Jacob's heart is at in relationship to God. Was he dwelling in Egypt, and would he be dwelling in Egypt? Yes. But his heart was always still in Canaan. His heart was always in the promised land. And because of that, he says, you know, I have to dwell here in Egypt, uh, but long term, you know what? Please bury my bones, bury my remains back in the land of promise, because that's where God's promises that that's where God's always inclined my heart towards and I think it's a picture in many ways of you and I uh, as believers you know the, the Bible makes it very clear that Egypt many times in the Bible is a picture of the world uh, and and for you and I you know we we live in this world but of course we're not of this world Philippians 3 is we're going to look at just this next Sunday morning says our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior from there. Paul tells the Colossians chapter three, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You know, and, and he says, and he says, set your mind on things, but where Christ is, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and reminding us that we've been raised with Christ, who is our life and, and our lives are joined with Christ. We have a heavenly citizenship. We still dwell on this earth. We, we kind of live and we have to exist in Egypt and we dwell here. But our hearts are connected to somewhere else. Uh, and I think there's that same kind of a resonation with our heart. Yeah, I have to live here in Egypt, but my heart's not here in Egypt. My heart's in Canaan. My heart's in, in the, the land of promise that one day the Lord has intended for me to, to receive. And, and, that, and that's the heart here. He's just asking Joseph, when I pass, please, he says, bury me in the land of promise from where God has called me to be ultimately. Chapter 48 then picks up, now it came to pass after these things... Again, the indication here seems after the famine has passed, so five more years of famine have gone by. Ultimately, he's 147 when he dies. So it seems maybe around the range of about another 12 years has gone by. So the famine has diminished now, that horrific famine they were going through. Joseph is taking care of his incredible responsibilities with all his administration 
as basically the prime minister of Egypt. Uh, Jacob and the other brothers are dwelling in the land of Goshen. They're about their affairs. They probably had interactions, you know, did the Thanksgiving thing together, the, the Christmas thing together. I'm sure they had, you know, times when they spent together, but everybody's going about their everyday affairs. And we have a big jump in time now. And we now come to that crisis moment when Jacob, the aged Jacob, is about to pass. He's about to die. And basically chapter 48 and 49 is a record of the deathbed, the deathbed experience of Jacob. It's quite interesting that the Bible gives us two whole chapters, quite a long narrative, basically of the death process of this man who knows he's about to die. And because of that, it's a beautiful picture of what he wants to do. He says, look, I'm about to die. And I love it. It's a beautiful scene. And the family all comes to his bedside and they spend time with him, and, and, and there's, there's a time when they're together with him before he passes. And I think it's a beautiful, respectful illustration of, of really what things should be about. Again, this is a family issues, yep. Problems, absolutely. But at a time when their father was about to die, one of their loved ones was out of the past, uh, they had the dignity and the unselfishness to say, you know what, the honorable and the right thing to do is we are not going to let our father pass all by himself, we're going to be by his bedside, we're going to rally around, and this is a beautiful scene, of course, as he then begins to speak prophetically uh, blessings and prophecies over his sons and their futures and so forth, and shares things with them uh, that are on his heart, and just a great way to see, you know, this godly heritage, I mean, I look at the story of, of Jacob here and how he dies, and this is, I mean, I would love to go this way, just I'm about to die you know, bring my family around, my kids around. If by that point there's grandkids and to be able to just spend time with them, share things on my heart, prophesy and pray over them and then pull my legs up in the bed and and just, you know, blast off. I can't think of a better way to go. You know, if I could get to pick, I'd, this is probably what I would pick, certainly rather than, you know, some tragic car wreck or, I mean, we can go all different ways. But man, if you know you're going to go and you're just fading because of your health, I mean, this is just a just a beautiful, beautiful scene here in some ways. Uh, verse 1, again, it came to pass after these things that Joseph is told, so somebody brings word to Joseph, indeed your father is sick. And the idea is he's, he's sick unto death. He's about to pass. You better come soon. It's one of those kind of calls. Your father's sick. He's about to expire soon. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And again, Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons born to Joseph there in Egypt. At this time, those two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're not young. They're probably in their early 20s. They now go to, with their father to go see their grandfather. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you and Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. So, you know, like a, a, a tough man, he's, he's, he's weather-worn, you know, in the world. He, he's about to die, and he, he musters up the strength to, to, to get himself sitting up in the bed so he can spend a few minutes. Again, the Bible's going to tell us at this point he can barely even see. You know, he's about to, to die very shortly, but he musters up the strength and, and just uh, sits up on his bedside to give his attention. And Jacob said to Joseph, his son, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, which is another name for Bethel. He appeared to me at Luz, or Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and multiply you, and make you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting 
possession. So uh, basically what he does is he, he brings Joseph to him and the uh, two grandsons. And what does he do? He, he just begins to talk to them about his own experience with God. And again, I love this. You know, should this be you or I, the next one on the agenda? <laughs> what a great thing to do. He doesn't bring him by his bedside and say, you know, look, let me... Let me tell you about all the problems I had with your mother. Or you know, let me just let me tell you know, just let me or just let me tell you about all oh, the st- this you know the president uh, just all oh, the things about if you should certainly never go to this party politically. Or, I mean, he doesn't. What does he do? He just says, you know what? Let me talk to you about my experience with God, because that's all that really matters. You know, what I mean, at the end of the day, what really does matter? I mean, I have had opportunity to do funerals all the time and be at funerals all the time. And you know what? The truth of the matter is, that's all the stuff that really, it's the stuff that really matters at the end of your life. And here, I like this. He says, he just begins to speak to him. And, and the first thing out of his mouth is he says, you know what? God Almighty appeared to me. God revealed himself to me. I was, you know, I was a, a rat and I was a conniver and I was doing things I shouldn't have done. And I was on the run and, and God just intervened in my life and he appeared to me at Bethel. Remember, that was a scene where he saw the, the ladder going up into heaven with the, with the vision and the angels of God ascending and descending. When God really, I think, revealed himself and broke into Jacob's life and he had his first real experience in a personal way with God. That's what he's recounting back to now. And referring to and speaking of how in that moment God gave him a promise. God gave him promises. And he's reminding his son and his grandsons of what? The promises of God. And that's a great thing to do. Look, let me talk to you about having an experience with God and let me remind you of God's promises because you know what? I don't have all the answers for what's going to happen the rest of your life and it doesn't matter what's happened in 147 years of my life. But I can tell you this, God's real. He revealed himself to me. He'll reveal himself to you. And God has given us promises. And you hold on to those promises after I'm gone. And they'll be enough to sustain you and to help you navigate your way. He says, the Lord said to me, I'll make you fruitful, multiply you, and give you and your descendants this land. Again, that would pass on then to his sons and grandsons. And again, I love the promises. Notice, God is the one that's doing everything. God's promises are based on what he does, not who we are or what we are able to do. It's what God's declared that he will do, and we just trust and receive in our lives. Verse 5, he says, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were both, or excuse me, born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. So in a sense, he's kind of saying, I'm adopting them by way of heritage, as my sons instead of my grandsons. I'm adopting them, they are mine, excuse me, as Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. In other words, just like the other firstborn, that Reuben was the firstborn, then Simeon. Your offspring whom you beget then after them shall be yours, and they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, here's what he's doing, just very simply. Reuben and Simeon, again, were the elder sons. And what Jacob is wanting to do here, and you'll see as he starts to talk about Rachel being the wife that he loved. And again, remember, Rachel's the woman he would have married and probably only married had not Laban pulled that deceptive trick and snuck Leah into the bedchamber the night of that honeymoon with the veil to deceive him. And because of that, in Jacob's mind, if Rachel's the woman he would have married and been with forever... Then in essence, Joseph, his firstborn son through Rachel, 
would have been his firstborn. And it makes you wonder if in some ways that's why there was always that affinity and that, that attachment he had to Joseph. Because in his heart, Rachel was the woman he really loved and wanted to marry. And in his mind, Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, his, his beloved, the woman he really wanted to marry and be with. So in some senses, he saw Joseph as a firstborn. So he says, you know what? I want, the firstborn always received, remember, a double inheritance. That was the way it worked. If, if, um, you know, if, if I had you know, uh, two sons, let's say, for example, and I was about to die, in that culture, what you would do is, okay, you would divide then your inheritance into three portions if you had two sons. The firstborn would get two portions, the double portion, and then the other child would get a single portion. That was the idea of the blessing of the firstborn. They received a double portion. It was a customary thing that they did. Well, what does Joseph have? He has two sons. So he says, okay, your two sons are both going to receive a portion so that I can give a double portion to you, Joseph. I'm going to give a portion to both of your sons in the same way that I would to all my other sons to be able to give that double portion. That's the idea of him saying, look, so I'm going to take your sons. They're going to be a part of the 12 tribes of Israel, just like one of my sons, even though they're grandsons. And of course, we know they then become uh, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, even though they typically were grandsons. Uh, genetically, actually, of Jacob and not his biological sons. But as for me, says verse 7, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died, there's the mention here of it, beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrathah, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. Verse 8, and then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? So you get the idea of how bad his eyes really are at this point. He's talking to Joseph. He's interacting with him, and he's speaking to him about his two sons, but he doesn't even realize his two grandsons are probably you know, maybe a, a few feet further behind, and maybe they step closer, or they, they kind of finally come into, into focus now. You know, his, his, his sight is extremely diminished, and he goes, uh, I... Who are these two guys here with you? Who's this you brought along with you? You know, he realizes there's two shadows there, but he's not certain who it is. So Joseph says to his father, uh, uh, "Pop, these are my boys. <laughs> these are these are the two sons that you've just been speaking to me about." He says, "These are my sons, whom God, verse nine, has given to me in this place." And he said to him, "Please bring them to me, and I will bless them." Again, I, I love the way Joseph. Uh, answers here again as, as a father this resonates with me as he's talking about his two sons who are these he said these are my two sons whom god has given to me and i think i mean i would to god that every human being who has the privilege and the blessing to be able to conceive a child and ha- would have that attitude these are the sons the children the daughter that god's given to me to realize as kids it is a gift from the lord and I love this. You know, these are the two sons whom God has given to me. That he realized that, uh, that they were a gift from the Lord. That life is always a, a gift from the Lord. And and I just love the way that he says that of his sons, the two sons whom God has given me while being in this place of Egypt. So he says, bring them near. I want to bless them. Now the eyes again of Israel, as I said, were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So he's now embracing his grandsons realizing who they are and again kind of a farewell thing he knows he's about to pass he wants to pray a blessing over them and israel said to joseph i had not thought to see your face but in fact god has also and that's the key word also shown me your 
offspring. Do you hear the heart of Jacob there? Jacob is saying, remember, he hadn't seen Joseph for 22 years. He thought Joseph had been dead for 22 years, grieving the loss of that relationship and interaction that he wished he had with his son, who in a sense was, was taken away. And he says, he says, I had thought that I would never see your face. And he says, in fact, God not only let me see your face, he's even let me see your offspring. The idea is that God has done in time. I had to wait a while for it. But he said, God didn't just grant me my desire. He granted me beyond my desire. He didn't let me just have my desire. He gave me even more than my desire. He's even let me see your offspring, my grandsons. And again, it's just a reminder of how at times, so often, that's how God works in our lives. You know, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. Uh, and there is, you know, there's a real heart sickness when you're waiting for something, you're longing for something and, and you're thinking, oh, if I could just this. And we do, we all have desires and longings and things that we wish God would do in our lives and something we're trusting God to someday satisfy, to move in some way or to answer some prayer. And, and man, just that, you know, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes, it's like a tree of life. Oh, wow. But so often do we not find that God has ways of working in his graciousness, his generosity, and his superabounding power that at times he doesn't even just give us our desire. He goes beyond our desire. He goes above and beyond because he's a good God. And he blesses. And then we find ourselves overwhelmed going, oh, not only that, but you gave me this and this and this on top of that, Lord. You took it so much further than I could have ever imagined. Reminds me of what Ephesians chapter 3 says regarding God's power in our life. Ephesians 3, when Paul's praying for the Ephesians, he says, I pray that you might know, he says, you know, the exceeding greatness of his power, he says, that, that works in us above and beyond what we could ask or think. Again, he says, you know, God's power, it works above and beyond what we could ask or think. So what we're asking God to do and what we think God could do in his gracious and in his power, God says, you know, my power works in your life. Whatever you think I can do, I can do above and beyond that. Whatever you're asking me for, that's all you're asking me for? God says, I can do not only that, I can do above and beyond that. Uh, and God has the power to do that, and many times in his kindness and graciousness, in his time frame, and that's the hard part, uh, we have those occasions where we get the sweetness of the enjoyment of seeing the culmination of something we've been longing for, and how God at times here, he says, Man, Lord, you, you didn't even do this, but you gave me beyond that. I'm seeing these two grandsons of Joseph. This is just amazing in his mind, Jacob says. Verse 12 says, Joseph says, then brought them from beside his knees, and they bowed down with his face to the earth. And then Joseph, again, knowing now his father wants to pray a blessing over them, Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh, with his left hand, he took him towards Israel's right hand and brought them near to him. So what he's doing here is just customary. Again, the eldest son typically got the, the right of the firstborn. And the right hand was always, the, you know, seemed to be the hand of prominence. So he brings now, it says very clearly here to us, he brings Ephraim towards Jacob or Israel, his father's left hand, because he was the younger of the two. And he brings Manasseh towards his right hand because he was the firstborn. This is customary. This is typical. This is how culture works. He's just honoring protocol. But verse 14 says, Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, the younger. 
and he put his left hand over onto Manasseh's head, guiding his hands, the Bible says, knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So, again, he can't see, so it's not and it's, and it's, uh, Joseph understands that, and, and as he's going to put his hands out, instead of going like this, he actually pulls one of these jobbers, and he, and he crisscrosses his hands, and, he, and you know, he's, he's not having a seizure or something, you know, just doing something like it. He, he knowingly is crossing his hands, it says here, guiding his hands knowingly, and he's breaking protocol, he's doing what's uncustomary. Hebrews uh, tells us in chapter 11, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped. In other words, by faith, he senses that God is saying, listen, despite culture and customary practice, this is the one whom I've called. I've chosen this one. By customary and cultural practices, it may seem this is the right one, but by faith, he discerns in his heart, but yet God has chosen this one. God has called this one. So he doesn't put his hand on Manasseh, the older. He puts his hand on the younger. And we, we've seen this pattern many times in the Bible, have we not? Where God passes over one. God passes over the one who's older, the one who's the expected one to inherit, the one who seems more gifted, more capable, you know, all these things. And God instead chooses the younger. God chooses the unexpected one, and God has the prerogative to do that. Can God work according to, to cultures and protocols? Yes. God always works in the confines of his word. But outside, you know, but, but as long as God's working within the confines of his word, God can mix things up and do whatever else he wants. You understand what I'm saying? As long as God doesn't go outside the boundaries of what his word says, God doesn't always work the ways that we work. He doesn't see things the way that we do. He doesn't make choices and choose people and use people. And he works according to his will of what he knows, of what he has sovereignly determined is best and who are the right individuals for the right things. And here now, knowingly, though he can't see an ounce, the Spirit of God, by faith, the Bible tells us, Hebrews 11, he's directing his hands. And he blessed Joseph and said to him, verse 15, he now pronounces a blessing. God, he says, before whom my fathers Abraham, Isaac, and walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. He speaks of the provision of God when he talks about God. God who has fed me. The Hebrew there literally uh, is the term where in the Hebrew it's translated many times shepherd. God who has shepherded me all my life long, or God who has fed me, which is a good reminder of what a shepherd is to do. A shepherd is to feed to nourish and he says this god who has been like a shepherd all my life long he's fed me all my life long and you know when you're 147 years old you can really say with authority and genuineness the longer you get you know and again to be able to say that to those younger to say it to your kids so that they have confidence look god has fed me my entire life long i love what david says in psalm 37 david says i have been young and now i am old and i've never seen the righteous forsaken and I've never seen God's descendants begging bread. And, and again, David can say that from a place of maturity. Look, I've never lacked. God's, God's always fed me. He's always kept food on my table. He's always taken care of me and seen fit that I was provided for. And that's what Jacob is rehearsing now. The angel, and the idea of verse 16, the angel of the Lord, who has redeemed me from all evil... Again, the Lord as well intervened, rescued, redeemed him from evil and harm. Bless these lads and let my name be named upon them and the name of the father Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. 
Well, verse 17, we get Joseph's response. Now, now Joseph, when he saw that his father, notice, had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Again, he's said, what, what are you doing here? This, this, isn't, this isn't the way I planned it. You know, sometimes family members get upset. This wasn't the way I planned it. It wasn't supposed to go this way. I had a different idea in mind. So he's displeased. Well, Father, you think maybe he's confused because he can't see. It displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Pops, you, you, you got the wrong son here. He's trying to transfer his hand over. Look at verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. In other words, look, I know what I'm doing still. I can't see an ounce, but I don't need to see something to act by faith. Faith has nothing to do with physical sight. And he says, look, by faith, I know what I'm doing. God's speaking to me. I've heard from the Lord. I know what God's doing. And, and, and he's, he's willing to, to hold his ground with his son and say, look, I understand you don't understand. And maybe this displeases you. But many times when we act by faith, people don't understand. And our family members may not understand. And it may displease them that we do certain things that we do or we make certain choices that we make. And, and he says, look, I know. I know that you don't understand. This, this is confusing to you. But he says, I know what I'm doing. Verse 19, he goes on to explain, he also shall become a people. And he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. The idea is, is again, is that when people would be blessed, that these two, would he's praying, would be blessed in such a way that when people see somebody blessed, that they would say the term, man, God's blessing you like Manasseh and, and, and like Ephraim. That they would become so blessed they would be known for the prosperity and blessing God bestowed upon them. And thus he said, Ephraim, verse 20, before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. As I said earlier, there's the explanation, that double portion giving to both of the sons, the grandsons, whom I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So take notice two things. First of all, verse 21, he says, and again, I love the words here. He says in verse 21, I am dying, but God will be with you. Man, if you're looking for a last statement before you breathe your last breath to say to your kids, your grandkids, whoever's, you know, look, I'm dying. And I know I've been there for you and I've done this for you and taken care of you. I'm dying. But God will be with you. And, and man, what a consolation to be passing, to be able to pass that simple wisdom. Oh, look, I know my absence is going to be hard for you. It's going to make it more difficult for you. But God's still going to be with you. And God's going to sustain you. And God will be with you. And, and his presence will be enough. I'm dying. God will be with you. He'll fulfill his plans for you. Bring you back to the land. And he says, I'm also giving to you a portion above your brothers. And then he refers to this piece of land. At some point, he took from the Amorites. We have no record of that. If you want to jot in your notes, if you're your Bible here, John 4, 5. Because in John chapter 4, verse 5, there's a reference uh, to this plot of land there as Jesus intimately has that conversation in Samaria with the woman at the will. 
Chapter 49 then says Jacob called his sons, that is the, the entire group of the 12 sons, to himself. Gather together that I may tell you, notice these words, what shall befall you in the last days. He's bringing them together and what he's going to do now we'll see in this chapter. And some of it we can you know, understand other part of it's, you know, kind of some obscure things. We're not certain exactly what the references were to. Certainly they knew as it unfolded in their lives. But he says, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what shall befall you. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to prophesy over them. The Spirit of God's given him revelation. The Spirit of God somehow is enabling him to have an awareness of what is, is coming ahead of them. And he says, I'm going to tell you what shall befall you. So he's going to pronounce a prophecy as the Spirit directs him to as he prays and speaks over his individual sons. Gather together and hear you, sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. He begins verse 3 with Reuben. Reuben, remember, was the eldest son, the one who was the firstborn biologically. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it, he went up to my couch. So the first thing he does dealing with Reuben is he speaks in verse 3 of how Reuben was the firstborn. And he was given a, a, an opportunity of incredible dignity, of incredible potential. He could have experienced... All the aspects of the firstborn, the blessing, the responsibility, the spiritual privilege. And, and he's looking, you were given a place of dignity and excellency. And he says, yet, unfortunately, you ruined your opportunity. You disqualified yourself. He, he refers to something that took place in verse 4, back in Genesis chapter 35, where Reuben, remember, went up to Bilhah, his father Jacob's concubine, and slept with her. Uh, and in a sense went in and, and had a incestuous relationship with one of his father's wives or concubines, Bilhah, and, and nothing much was mentioned of it, but notice your sin will always find you out. Maybe it was never discussed, but here on his deathbed, he brings it up. It comes forth. Again, you can never escape your sin. And he says, here you have this incredible potential opportunity, but yet he says, verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not excel because of the sexual sin, the sexual immorality that you committed. And that stain of his moral compromise would be the thing that would hinder him and ultimately, in a sense, caused him to lose the right of the firstborn and for it to be passed on to someone else. Verse 4, unstable as water you shall not excel. Again, the idea of the the instability uh, of Reuben's life. And, and again, unstable as water. You know, the, Your translation may say boiling. Again, water is unstable. When it boils, it just flows over. You can't control it. It just flows over when it boils. Or water also has a tendency to do what? It always seeks its own level. And more than that, it always seeks what? The lowest level. And he says, this that's what you're like morally. It's a character flaw. He says, your life, it's got a character flaw. It's unstable. You always seem to seek the lowest level. You're willing to compromise and make concessions. And he had a moral character flaw that he was willing like water to just be you know, propelled by whatever his desires were, the lust of the flesh. And in him, his weakness was the area of lust and sexuality. And because of what he did, he said, that instability in your life, it will hinder you and you will never excel. Because of that character flaw. In other words, what you could have been, you will never be. 
what you could have been because of that thing that you allow to go unchecked and undealt with your life, it will hinder you, he's saying. It's something that's ruining opportunity. And again, you know, for you and I, we need to be careful. There are areas of weakness in all of our lives. And what we don't want is areas of weakness to be something that ultimately hinder us from being able to excel and experience all that God wants for us. But if we live an unstable life or we don't walk the straight and narrow and we make concessions and compromises morally, especially as a Christian, after we know the truth, you know, Alan Redpath, you know, says before, you know, you know, referring to someone maybe in ministry or serving the Lord. And he says, look, you know, can, can the questions always asked, you know, can somebody, you know, commit sexual sin, commit adultery, these kind of things, and then still, you know, pastor a church or serve the Lord in ministry. And Alan Redpath said, look, you know, that individual, they may they may fly again, but they will never soar as high. Never. Because their wings are clipped. And something is broken down in the moral fiber work of a person's life that what they could have been or what they would have been and the, the excelling that they could have accomplished, can God heal, forgive, restore? Yes, but something damaging happens. And this was Reuben. He, he forsook the incredible opportunity because of the instability in his life. He never excelled and he missed what could have been in his life. Verse 5, he then speaks to Simeon and Levi who were brothers, and he says, instruments of cruelty are they in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So, Reuben comes up to the plate first. His moral uh, flaw in his heart was the struggle with, with lust and sexual sin. Notice, for Simeon and Levi, they had a problem as well. What was their issue? Their issue was uncontrollable anger and wrath, outbursts of wrath. What he refers to here in verses 5, 6, and 7, when he calls them instruments of cruelty, and he says in their self-will... You know, they did things where their wrath was cruel. He's referring to here the event that took place, remember, when they slaughtered the men in Shechem. You remember a number of chapters back when Dinah, their sister, was, it seems, you know, forcefully, potentially raped, and someone took advantage of her, their sister Shechem, a young man named Shechem, sexually against Dinah. And the brothers were, were so mad, they deceived the people of the land into uh, you know submitting to circumcision and saying hey we'll let you marry our sister and then three days after all the men of the city were circumcised Simeon and Levi in their anger and wrath which was maybe justifiable to start with there is justifiable anger but their anger was uncontrolled and they let their anger go to extremes and never should have and instead of just going and dealing with Shechem remember what they did they killed every male in the whole city again the Bible tells us be angry but sin not Again, anger is a God-given emotion. There are times when it's right to be angry. If somebody raped my sister or something, you should be angry. They were justifiably angry at the man who did what he did to their sister Dinah. But it doesn't give you the right to let your anger be uncontrolled and go murder every male in the city. Do you see what I'm saying? And this was the problem. Their anger was out of control. Their anger was something that caused them to be way more fierce and cruel and to do things beyond what they shouldn't have. And again, here, their father brings this up as a reproof to them because of what they did. They let their anger 
be something that controlled them rather than them controlling and channeling their anger. That's key. When you get angry, the, the, the issue is this, is your anger needs to be constructive and not destructive. That was the flaw here. Their anger would have been constructive if they would have went and dealt with Shechem individually. Their anger was destructive and that in self-will, they took it upon themselves to go overboard and just murder every man in the city, which was completely cruel and fierce and wrong. Verse 80 then turns to Judah. Judah, he says, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And again, we know the name Judah literally means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. The idea here is someone in a place of rulership. You'll notice the repetitive terms regarding Judah and his future ahead. Judah is a lion's whelp for the prey. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as the lion, who shall rouse him? And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him, notice, shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So the references here to Judah, notice there are continual inferences in the metaphoric language he's using here to someone who would be in a place of rulership. Uh, he mentions in uh, you know verse 8 there that his brothers would praise him. He mentions that people would bow down before him. He then refers in verse 9 to him being like unto a lion. What's a lion? What's a lion? Remember, Wizard, king of the forest? You know, a lion's a king. You know, That's the idea. When you think of a scepter, verse 10, a scepter is the thing that someone who is in rulership uses. You know, The scepter that they hold to give their judgments. Verse 10, he refers to him as a lawgiver, someone who issues laws, as someone who's in a place of authority and rulership. The people bowing down, verse 11, binding his donkey to a vine. Kings would ride on donkeys in that day, but servants would go and tie up their donkeys for them. Now, here's what's interesting. We know ultimately this prophetically will unroll specifically ultimately in who? In Jesus, who ultimately is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes from Judah. So ultimately these things will be fulfilled in Christ. It's interesting, particularly notice with me in verse 10, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now that word Shiloh there literally means one who brings or ushers in peace or rest. That's the idea there of Shiloh in the Hebrew. Because of that, the rabbinic teachers in that they took this as a messianic promise very clearly. And they took it as a messianic promise that the scepter rulership would never depart from Judah, the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, where Jerusalem and the capital and so forth. The rulership shall never depart from Judah for the Jews until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah, the one who brings peace, the promised one to bring rest to our people comes. Now, what's interesting is this. Around 6 AD, the Roman government when they ruled over the people of Israel, over the Jews, around that time frame, historically, they took away from the Jews the right to exercise capital punishment. Now, when you have authority in government, one of the marks of authority in government is you have the right to execute capital punishment. You have the right to put someone to death to exercise the death penalty. 
you have been completely conquered when somebody steps in and says, you no longer have that right anymore. And the Jews came to a place where when they were conquered and controlled by the Roman authority, the Romans took away the authority of the Jews to exercise capital punishment. That's why, remember, the Jews had to go to Pilate to ask for Jesus to be executed because they didn't have the right to execute someone. Now, when that happened in that time frame, when the Jews lost the right, in a sense, to exercise the scepter, rabbinic teachers and Jews all around Israel went weeping throughout the streets in that day because they felt God's word had failed. Oh my goodness, the, the prophecy, the Bible says in Genesis, the scepter won't depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And the Messiah hasn't come yet. And, 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 and the scepter has departed. God's word has failed. And they were grieving and weeping. But what they did not know is that God's word hadn't failed. There was somebody in a Jewish carpenter shop in obscurity at that time still historically learning the craft of his father whose public ministry had just not yet begun yet. And God's word hadn't failed. In, in their eye gate from what they could see circumstantially they felt like god's word had failed it looked like god's promise had failed but god was keeping his promise they just weren't aware of what god was doing that they couldn't see yet jesus was already on the scene he was alive at that time and it's a great reminder for us because sometimes uh, let's be real candid there are certain promises and truths and things in god's word whether it's something written or something god's given to you or to me and sometimes man we can get really discouraged depressed you know weep and and feel like god's it's failed god's words failed it just there's it's obvious it's failed it is never going to happen it's not going to come to pass and the reality is Though we may feel that grief and it may look like that the truth of the matter is you have no idea what God may be doing over here behind the scenes, orchestrating and preparing and coordinating something that you are completely not aware of, that he's about to begin to unfold shortly. And, and again, back to having to live by faith, but just very interesting how that prophecy and those things unfolded historically. Verse 13, we then get to Zebulun. He says, who shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So Zebulun, when you look at where they get situated as a, as a tribe, they end up dwelling, it seems, right between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. They weren't on the Mediterranean Sea, but they kind of dwell right in between the Mediterranean and the Sea of Galilee to the east and the west. So because of that, guess what they did? They became a tremendous trade route, and they had an incredible view of the sea they could look to the east and they could look to the west uh, you want to talk about a you know a nice water view they had both right where they dwelt and that's what god's referring to how they became a haven by the sea how trade and the haven of ships passed through their territory it helped them on that trade route verse 14 issachar is a strong donkey i bet he felt great to hear that you know <laughs> you know everybody's got one of those in their kids you know everybody's got a donkey got a prince and a donkey he got more than one son probably Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and yet became a band of slaves. And the inference here seems to be prophetically regarding Issachar is that Issachar it seems to be Jacob saying was strong. He was strong like a donkey that could bear burdens, do, carry a heavy workload. He was someone who was strong, who had great potential, but he was lazy and he was docile. Great potential, strength, capability, he says, but yet, in, though incredibly strong, 
He saw that rest was good. The idea is that he, he just was lazy. He didn't, he didn't want to do anything with his potential. And because of that, though he could have excelled instead, verse 15 says he actually became enslaved. He became a band of slaves. So much strength, giftedness, potential, but his laziness caused him instead of excelling and ruling over others and prospering and succeeding, it caused him to be enslaved and to lose great opportunity of what he could have become. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, the idea is poisonous, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. Now, in regards to Dan, what prophetically is being said about him and the tribe of Dan is that he had the potential notice for rulership, to be a judge, that he had the giftedness, it seems, the the unique capability uh, Dan did to provide leadership, to be a judge in matters, and yet Dan, we know, ultimately was the tribe who did what? They introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel. Uh, they're the ones in the north who allowed Jeroboam to establish the foreign place of worship and the false altar to God, which just contributed to more idolatry. And you can read about those things in you know, Judges 18 and, and in uh, you know, 1 Kings chapter 12. And here's the idea. Here's someone who should have been a leader. He had the capability to lead and to direct people to move them forward and to help them move towards God and to be good in his leadership. And yet, because of what he did, he instead became like a poisonous serpent. And instead, it says, he caused people, verse 17, to actually fall backward. That's always a tragedy. When you have the capability to lead people forward and to help people, and instead you become poisoned and you start doing foolish things and you compromise and instead of leading people forward, you actually drag people backward and you poison people and cause more harm than good. Now, verse 18, you just get this phrase that is interjected here. It seems not even connected to these different sons in the prophecies. He just blurts out, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I just right in the middle of it. It's almost maybe he just got frustrated talking about his kids. And so he just pauses. <laughs> These kids, oy vey. You know, I mean, <laughs> here he's got 12 sons and they're, and they just, oh Lord, but I have waited for your salvation. Can you take me now before I talk about the other six? You know, I just, he just, I've waited for your salvation. And the word salvation there is literally the term Yeshua or Jehovah provides salvation or what we know the name Jesus. Interesting. I've, Lord, I have all this, but I've just been waiting for your salvation. That, that's what I'm really longing for, Lord, to be taken with you. Verse 19, Gad, he says, a troop shall tramp upon him. So he's saying you're going to be overcome, but he shall triumph at last. And again, Gad, remember, was um, you know, the, the tribe that settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River, they chose not to go into the promised land of Canaan with the rest of the tribes. They were one of those tribes that said, hey, we're content over here on the eastern border. I mean, we know we could go into the land, but we kind of like it over here on the east. So we don't really, we don't want to go all the way in. We want to stay out here on the edge. We, we kind of like it out here on the edge. We want to stay on the eastern side. We don't want to go in, even though God said, we're, can we stay over here? And remember, ultimately, Joshua allowed them to do that. God granted them to stay outside of the land 
But because of that, living on the outside of the land and on, out on the edge, what did they do? They made themselves vulnerable and they perpetually struggled more than the other tribes with the attacks of invading enemies and they found themselves struggling more than all the other tribes because they chose to stay out on the edge. And it's an incredible picture of exactly what happens with us. You know, when we want to stay out on the edge and we don't want to go all the way in, but we want to, well, I just, yeah, but I want to, I don't want to go all the way. I'm just going to kind of hang out here on the edge. I want to live on the fringes spiritually. I don't want to go all the way in. Uh, typically, the tragedy of that is people become vulnerable and the enemy tends to attack them and draw them in all the more. And if you know people, I don't think you're one of them because you're here on a Wednesday night and most people don't do that from a church. But if you know people who kind of, they want to live on the fringe. They're Christians, but they want to live on the fringe, you know. They don't want to always be in fellowship. They just want to kind of live on the edge. You know, I'm a Christian, but I don't always want to be in church. I just want to kind of hang out on the edge and, and keep my distance from the things of the body of Christ. You tell me, is it not true? They tend to be the ones that are always being attacked by the enemy and struggling and backsliding. And why? Because they're living on the edge. And they don't have the safety and the protection of the boundaries of the things of God and the people of God. And that, that was what happened to Gad, that particular tribe, because of where they lived. We'll have to look at a few more to close up here. Verse 30 says, Bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. So apparently this was the baker in the family. I, I really don't know ultimately what that, that refers to, uh, but somehow prophetically... Uh, his father saw that uh, he'd be good in the kitchen. And somebody's got to make danishes for the king, I guess, right? <laughs> you know, everybody's got their own gifts. Some people swing a sword. Some people bake good pastries. He shall yield royal dainties. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose, and he uses beautiful words. So, again, he seemed to be someone who roamed around, as well as the fact, verse 21 says, uh, that he also seemed to be someone who had a real way with words. He uses beautiful words. He apparently, from this tribe, in this particular son, Naphtali, uh, you know, Jacob said, you know what, you have a keep, maybe he was good with literature. He was good with poetry. He, he had a real capability to use words in a way that were beautiful to articulate. And again, uh, much of the disciples came from the area of Naphtali, which I, I find interesting because ultimately, you know, again, in that area of the Galilee area where Jesus and then his disciples came from, many of them grew up in that area and became the ones to go out to share the beautiful words of the gospel message of, of Jesus Christ. But, you know, as I look at this, you know, and let me just say this from a parental perspective, especially for those of us who are parents here, you know, I look at what Jacob's doing as he's, again, about to die, he's prophesying over his son's as the Spirit of God is directing him. But you notice, again, he's aware of the distinctions and the diversities and the differences, the uniqueness of all his different kids and grandkids and so forth. And I, and I find that wonderful. I mean, I find it really beautiful that God gave him that insight and he, he's, he's speaking to them and relating to them on those levels. He's appreciating and valuing, hey, you're good at pastries. You make good pastries then, you know. And you're good with words, and you use good with words. The thing is, is, is this, is he knew his kids. He knew them. And the reason he knew them is because he had to have spent time with them. And he got involved in their lives, and he saw the way God wired them differently. He knew their weaknesses and their failures and their flaws, and he knew their strengths and the potentials and the ways that God made them. 
you know, I am a real firm believer, if you're a parent and if you're an encouragement to others who are parents, you know, I hear people say a lot of times, you know, we got to mold our kids, we got to mold our kids. You know, I see the Bible saying we need to train our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Yes, I think we should train them in the things of God. We should teach them how to walk God. But I don't necessarily know if we're supposed to mold our kids. That seems a bit presumptuous to me. I think we're supposed to unfold our kids. The Bible tells me in Psalm 139 that God has knit our kids together in their mother's womb. He uniquely has knit our kids together. And again, when the Bible says train them up in the way in which they should go, and when they get old, they won't turn from it. Again, yes, the way they should go is in the ways of the Lord. That's universal. But the truth of the matter is, you know what? Each one of our sons and our daughters and our kids, God's wired them different. They have different temperaments. They resonate with certain things. They have different strengths and weaknesses. You know, I have three daughters, and I remember when you know, the first one was born and the second one was born. Oh, man, wow, that's very polar opposites, very different. And then when I had a third one, I was wigging out. I remember telling these come in three flavors? Three? I mean, I thought there was just, you know, chocolate and vanilla. And then you realize that God's wired them all different. And I think we need to appreciate that. I think we need to value that. You know, our, our culture just, well, just don't get arrested and serve God and, you know, accept the, this is who I am, so you be just like me. And you fulfill all my dreams. I didn't get to do this, so you're going to get to do this. I wasn't a track star, so you're going to be a track star. I wasn't a dance star, so you're going to be a dance star. You know, wait, listen, maybe they're a trombone player. Maybe, you know, well, unfold them. Find out who they are. Pray, ask God for insight, and train them in the way in which they should go. Don't try and make them like their older brother. Don't try and make them like you. Don't try and make them like your husband or your wife. Train them in the way they should go. God's created them, wired them, called them uniquely exactly how they are. And the highest call of God is to see that and I think to help facilitate that in the Lord. Yeah, you be a Christian, but you be also who God's called you to be in the way God's designed you. And I appreciate that Jacob, again, I see that insight here, again, as a grandfather, as a father, whatever it may be. Just a great lesson and an illustration.